I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind at home. I'm delighted to welcome virtually to our program, Rutger Bregman. Um, he is a historian. He is author of Utopia for Realists, and now Humankind. Mankind um, is threatened right now, Rutger. Um, I was thinking about the headline, the title of your first book, um, mm-hmm. and we're, we seem to be living through a dystopia for realists now with the Iran-U.S. confrontation, the global pandemic, and now worldwide protests. Um, how, how do you see it? Uh, is that a fair way to, to, to look at it? Or, or are we going to come out of the dystopia into a utopia? Mm-hmm. You know, it's very understandable if people are pessimistic right now. I always like to make a distinction between optimism and hope. I mean, you certainly don't have to be an optimism right now, but I think there are some reasons to have hope because hope is about the possibility of change, right? And I think that this moment um, gives us a lot of reasons for hope as well. I mean, we've seen that ideas that just a couple of years ago were dismissed as quite unreasonable and radical and crazy have been moving into the mainstream. Now, they still have a long way to go yet. I'm talking about ideas like universal basic income or higher taxes on the rich or... Uh, oh, you name it. Uh, but that gives me uh, that gives me some hope. What were you trying to do in building on Utopia for Realists in your newest work, Humankind, um, which which evokes for me and our viewers um, well-being, um, mm-hmm. the welfare of society at mm-hmm. large? Um, what were you hoping to accomplish in uh, cultivating? This, this new work? You know, the book is really about a silent scientific revolution that has taken place in science in the past 15 to 20 years. So what's happened, and many people don't know this, is that scientists from really diverse disciplines, think about anthropologists, archaeologists, sociologists, psychologists, they've all moved from a quite cynical view of human nature, of who we are as a species, to a more hopeful view. Now, I'm not saying we're angels or anything, Um, But it seems to be the case that most people deep down are pretty decent. And I think we've also seen that during this pandemic, right? If you watch the news, then you hear a lot about, I don't know, people looting and, you know, uh, making run for toilet paper. But if you zoom out a little bit, then you see that actually the vast majority of the behavior by most people is pro-social in nature. People really cooperating and helping each other. And so in the book, I, I just wanted to connect the dots that, to show that something bigger is going on here. But would you contrast humankind and the condition of humankind in Europe or where you are in the Netherlands with humankind in our experience here? Because in endeavoring to uh, resolve the public health crisis, um, the murder of an innocent civilian in Uh, Minnesota Mm -hmm. has exposed larger inequalities, systemic, not only systemic in police brutality, Mm -hmm. uh, but systemic in the inequities that pervade. And when 40 million Americans instantly overnight lose their jobs 
mm-hmm. who were already in the lower income um, or the aspiring income bracket, and, and particularly mm-hmm. service workers who've um, gotten the short end of the stick in the gig economy, mm-hmm. um, it, it isn't that exposing a, a dystopia here, if you want to call it that, maybe, maybe it's just a very grim portrait that we will have to overcome. And, and I guess my question is, is there a reason to be more cynical about the condition of humankind in the United States right now? Hmm. You know, institutional racism and racism and discrimination, these are not uniquely American phenomena. You know, it exists everywhere in the world and, and in Europe, sadly, as well. Um, there are some things, though, that I, I think, you know, we can learn from other countries. In the book, I've got one example of how uh, prisons in Norway are organized. And I think that the U.S. could learn quite a bit from that. So what you have in the United States are sort of taxpayer-funded institutions that are called prisons, where you have citizens who go in there for small crimes, I don't know, small drug offense, and they come out as criminals, right? So sort of they create this kind of bad behavior. Um, Now, in Norway, they have the opposite. They have institutions where people go in as criminals and they come out as citizens, right? Now, if you look at these prisons, they're, they're, they're very strange, actually. There's one prison called Bastoy, a little bit to the south of Oslo, and it basically looks like a holiday resort. Uh, inmates have the freedom to relax with the guards, socialize with them, to make music. They've got their own music studio and their own music label, which is called Criminal Records. Um, and so sort of your first intuition is like these Norwegians have gone nuts. Like this is very crazy. But then you look at the statistics, you look at the numbers, and it turns out this is the most effective prison in the world because it has the lowest recidivism rate in the world, the lowest chance that someone will commit another crime once he or she gets out of prison. So investing in these kind of institution, uh, institutions, it's, you'll actually get a return on investment. These things save money in the long term because the chance that someone will find a job actually increases with 40%. Now, is this unimaginable that this will ever happen in the United States? In my book, I, I try to show that actually it was the U.S., that was the first country that experimented with these kind of prisons in the 60s, just as the U.S. was almost uh, about to implement a universal basic income to completely eradicate poverty at the beginning of the 70s. So I think that's, that's where historians may be useful. They just can show that, you know, things can be different. You know, they can be much better. Those solutions that you describe are innovative and imaginative at a time when this country couldn't even honor the commitment of frontline essential workers, mm. a sensible immediate measure would have been ensure that for the next year, these incredibly courageous people have their transportation costs covered in full, mm-hmm. in advance. Mm-hmm. I mean, this country doesn't seem capable of the compassion, let alone the ingenuity that you're describing. Mm. You know, I think the country is capable of the compassion because we see so much compassion. We see millions of very courageous protesters in the streets. It's just that, you know, uh, we need a political revolution here. So the short summary of my book would be something like, most people are pretty decent, but power corrupts. You know, for the vast majority of our history, when we were still nomadic hunter-gatherers, there was a process going on that scientists called survival of the friendliest which means that actually for millennia, it was the friendliest among us who had the most kids and so had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. 
And then you look at current politics, and it seems like, well, that's not survival of the friendliest. This is survival of the shameless, right? And it's not only the case in the US, it's also the case in the UK with, I don't know, pretty shameless politicians like Boris Johnson or Brazil, Bolsonaro. So it's a real indictment of the so-called democracy we have created that somehow not the most humble leaders, you know, rise to the top, but the most shameless leaders. And uh, yeah. I think, I think you're onto something. It is the means by which we can achieve participa participatory democracy that will define the efficacy of those next imagined, uh, more imaginative solutions to yeah. policy crises. So where is the onus on? Is it on the protesters or is it on the government institutions? And, and you have pointed out that the U.S. protests have given birth to a wave of protests around the world now. Um, so each country will be different, but does your book advocate for a, a specific tactic that can be used by protesters to try to, in this new tech age, mm -hmm. actualize their, their movement for reform um, when the political means to achieve it uh, really don't seem apparent? Hmm. Well, you know, it's not up to me as a white European to say, I don't know, this effective is better or that, uh, that, that tactic is better, you know, um, or to say that people shouldn't riot or whatsoever. I mean, like, like uh, Martin Luther King said, a riot is the language of the unheard. But it is interesting, though, that if you look at the scientific evidence, that the approach that the vast majority of protesters are taking right now, very courageously so, the peaceful approach, is also the most effective one. So we've got the work of a sociologist called Erica Chenoweth, who's built this huge database of protest movements since the 1900s. And she discovered that actually peaceful protest movements are twice as successful as violent ones. And the reason is that they bring in a lot more people, on average 11 times more, right? It's just you bring in children and women and the elderly and, 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 and older men and you name it. So everyone can participate in these more peaceful uh, protest movements. I'm not saying that violent, uh, you know, a certain amount of rioting or violence, I, I'm very hesitant to sort of condemn that when we see sort of the horrific, brutal, savage police violence, right? That's what, that's the real story. That's what we should really be talking about. And um, yeah, but then again, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm hopeful and I'm so impressed uh, just to see this extraordinary uprising of so many peaceful protesters who are against all odds, you know, keeping their self-control and um, doing what's right. It's, it's very, very impressive. I think, though, that the missing piece is that, at least so far in the United States, many of the protesters are, are not um, pursuing uh, clear legislative or political goals mm -hmm. um, that define, you know, we will... Um, we will protest peacefully uh, up until um, we have some uh, deliberative means of mm -hmm. our goals. And uh, I think it's been the case with some of the more recent protests, like the March for Our Lives, that there were specific tangible outcomes they were seeking. And sometimes with immediacy when it came to gun laws in Florida, gun safety, mm -hmm. So what do you think, you know, just being realistic, mm -hmm. uh, 
people marching mm-hmm. can, can advocate for uh, change and try to achieve that change in the span of, of months and not years. Mm-hmm. Well, if you zoom out a little bit, and if you look at all the protest movements that we've seen in the world in the past, I don't know, five to six years, right? We've seen many more protest movements, not only against institutionalized racism and police violence, but also against climate change and the lack of action uh, from governments there. And we have seen real progress. Um, People may, for example, look at someone like Joe Biden and say, oh, I'm disappointed. He's these boring, moderate candidate. You know, I'm not enthusiastic about him. And sure, that's fair. But then if you look at his climate plan, it's actually more radical than Bernie Sanders' climate plan of 2016. So the window has shifted, right? Ideas that were once really unrealistic and dismissed as crazy have moved into the mainstream. Um, And now is the time, obviously, to make the march through the institutions. So yes, a a lot will depend on the outcome of the of the election uh, this year. Um, But yeah, just just zooming out, I do I do see quite quite a lot of substantial change. Historically speaking, how how do you think that in the wake of the pandemic, our economy can recover in a more equitable fashion? Hmm. You know, every historian knows that throughout history, crises have been abused by those in power. Think about the burning of the Reichstag, and then you get Adolf Hitler. Think about 9-11, and then you get two illegal wars and massive surveillance of citizens by the government, right? This is, the, this is an old playbook. Um, but we've got other examples as well. The New Deal, you know, was, was, uh, they came up with it in the midst of the Great Depression. Or think about the Beveridge Report, the primal text of uh, the uh, welfare state in, in Great Britain. It was not written after the war, but in 1942, when the bombs were falling on London. So now is the time to do something like that. And, and, and here's my hope. If you again zoom out and you look at the past 40 years, I think you could describe it as the era in w- that, were governed by the, uh, that was governed by the values of selfishness and competition, right? The greed is good mantra. My hope is, and I, I do feel I sense a shift in the zeitgeist here, is that we can now move in a different era that's more about solidarity and cooperation. Um, it's not a prediction, you know, historians can't make predictions. I don't think anyone can. Um, but it's something I hope for. It's a, it's a real possibility. And do you think enough people are strategizing? Hope is not a strategy in mm-hmm. the results that you pro-socially envision. And, and I think that mm-hmm. the economic inequities are just one piece of this. Yes. We have an information culture that has deprived a lot of communities of information literacy and mm-hmm. integrity in, uh, in, in basically in order for communities to launch the kind of alliance you're describing, a, a mm-hmm. alliance as opposed to a tribal alliance. We've, we've talked ad nauseum about mm-hmm. deficits and deficiencies of the mm-hmm. of contemporary media environment. And, and so I know you're hopeful, but mm-hmm. is that one um, source of, of uh, obstacle that you think, uh, if it's not corrected soon, will stymie mm-hmm. any honest attempts for policy reform? Just the mm-hmm. media well, deeply, deeply toxically polarized and monetized. Mm-hmm. 
we don't have much time, obviously. Also, if you think about challenges like climate change, right? <laughs> we're, we're in a hurry. But as you know, I, in 2019, I, uh, I was a guest in Davos, uh, you know, where the, the rich and famous of the world come together to talk about the world's issues. Uh, and one of the star economists there was a woman, Italian economist, named Mariana Mazzucata. And I think she's one of those people who's responsible for, I don't know, a break with the status quo and a very different kind of thinking about the role of the state, for example. One of her favorite and best examples is how we got the iPhone. So every sliver of fundamental technology in the iPhone, it was invented by researchers on the government payroll, right? Uh, think about voice recognition, battery, internet, touchscreen right? It's, it's really impressive. And that is exactly what we need right now. When you think about something like a Green New Deal, all the thinking about the Green New Deal that we've seen in the past couple of years, it, it didn't exist five years ago. But now there is a more robust plan. And I think there's also much better organizing around that. Um, you know, I can give you many other examples of, of the real shift in economic thinking. Thomas Piketty, Gabriel Zuckman, you know, the expert on on tax paradises. It's not enough, but you, we can't say that nothing is happening. Actually, quite a lot is happening. No, that's, that's fair. I, I think that quite a lot is happening too in terms of the bellicosity and aggressiveness of the rhetoric and the mm -hmm. um, and, and authoritarian-esque or wannabe authoritarian or actually now more uh, authentically authoritarian um, leaders and mm -hmm. uh and so you have the vast majority of people on the on the side of the field that you're describing mm -hmm. uh, but but you seem to have uh those um plutocracies um uh or plutocrats and uh cacistocracies that exist to deprive people you know yeah. people on the field so i i oh, how are you how are you accepting the the sort of totality of of uh, mm -hmm. these uh, presidents or prime ministers or mm -hmm. people who lead countries who are employing tactics and rhetoric that is yeah. closely resembling the 30s and 40s. You know, I'm just as worried about that as you and as as anyone else. I think, um, and again, this is why I'm talking about hope and not about optimism. Rebecca Sol Solnit, one of my favorite authors, she, she wrote a book. In 2003, I think it was published, you know, when the Iraq war was about to start or it just started, anyway, called Hope in the Dark. And I don't know, I, I, ever since I read that book, I feel that hope is kind of a moral obligation, um, is that it impels you to act, to do something. And um, uh, yeah, I, I see all the, the dark possibilities. I see the dark scenarios. Maybe we're at the beginning of a very long and dark road. But that's only all the more reason to imagine alternatives and to work on them and to, you know, to do I, everything that you can do to contribute. Rutger, I, I've, how do you assess President Obama historically? Because hope was the mantra that he employed. And mm -hmm. the, the realization of most of his um, voters was that he was a, a uh, reinforced the best of our ideals Mm -hmm. um, the, the practice of, of uh, thoughtful deliberation and democratic engagement mm -hmm. of ideas. But mm -hmm. on the economic issues, he, he didn't really espouse anything yeah. that, that was going to be cor corrective or that even acknowledged the, the 
uh, systemic disparities that exist. Now, you point to uh, Sanders and Biden, too, who has much more fully accepted where we are. And mm-hmm. so that, that may be in the air. But I just wanted you to give our viewers and listeners mm-hmm. a sense of the economic tectonic shift, if there is one, in Europe. Yeah. yeah. What, is the, what is the state of sort of economic thinking around um, the, the sort of the, the future of, of, of governance, both by state mm-hmm. and, and EU and, and yeah. EU's governance? Well, I think the direction is quite similar as, as the direction in the US. So um, just think about the thinking around the euro and the euro group and the European Union, right? We're all in this monetary union. And you might remember the crisis that we ended up in uh, after 2008, when Northern European countries refused to show solidarity with Southern European countries. Right. Now, that is still an issue, right? It's still an issue. So the Netherlands, where I'm from, still, you know, doesn't want to uh, like significantly help Southern countries like Spain or Italy. But Germany has changed, right? Germany has changed. Angela Merkel is showing real leadership right now. And that is, that is interesting. It's a, it's a very substantial difference from the debate we had uh, 10 years ago. Um, and also, if you look at the new generation, I always like to point out that, um, you know, sometimes people say, oh, uh, if you're young, then you're progressive and may- maybe a bit left-wing. But as you get older, you become more conservative. This is, this is really a myth. It's really a myth. If you look at the 80s uh, and the UK, for example, who was the most popular politician among the young? It was Thatcher, right? It was the classic neoliberal conservative candidate. Who was the most popular in the US? It was Reagan, also the conservative candidate. Now, if you now ask young people, if we would have a society, for example, in the UK, where only people under 40 could vote, you know, like Labour would win with a landslide. There would be no district that was conservative, right? So change is coming. It, It is coming, whether you like it or not. I mean, just the demographics here. Are on the sides of are on the side of change. Um, the question is, though, do we have enough time? That is that is what I really worry about. And as a final question, Rutger, just going back to that fascinating and and courageous Davos debate that you partook in, um, do do you see um, more advanced awareness and action coming from? The, the community, that community, uh, that that really has been the community responsible for lobbying government policy. I mean, what mm-hmm. the folks at Davos want yeah. usually is what happens in governments. You know, there seems to be this strange law in history that when almost no one is talking about a certain injustice, it's it's like the worst, it's at the worst state possible. And then as people become angrier about something it's actually improving, right? Because people are angrier. So the sort of the paradox is that at the moment that people are really, really angry about something, it's actually already getting better. And, and sort of tax avoidance and the whole debate around that, that's a really good example. So 10, 15 years ago, it was the worst possible situation, right? Massive tax avoidance from huge corporations and rich individuals. But now that we've become angrier about it in the past five years, we are actually seeing progress. So Switzerland, for example, used to have bank secrecy. It's gone. And why? Because the US said, stop it. The FBI said, we don't want it anymore. Stop it. And Switzerland is not exactly the most powerful country in the world, right? So when the US says stop it, then it's over. And, and I think that 
yeah, we'll, we'll see more of that kind of progress. If the European Union and the US work together to crack down on tax paradises like Ireland, like Luxembourg, like the Netherlands, where I'm from, it'll be over very quickly. So we should become more angry about these kind of things because that helps us. Finally, and do you think that that is enough or is something like Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax necessary um, to, is that necessary to drive a more equitable capitalistic system uh, where everybody can participate? In the US, I don't see how you can ever do it without a wealth tax because just wealth inequality has just grown so, it's become so big, right? Uh, but no, you know, I'm not gonna pay, pick my favorite tax. You know, I like inheritance taxes, estate taxes, income taxes, uh, corporation taxes. You need all of them, obviously. And then let's remember that in the 50s and the 60s, when we had much higher levels of taxation, capitalism actually worked better. You know, it had higher levels of growth, higher level of innovation. So. Yeah, this is all about making capitalism work again, uh, but not only for the rich, but for everyone. Rutger Bregman, uh, I want to thank you for your, for your time today. Uh, you are the author of two books that I think our viewers and listeners ought to check out. Um, Utopia for Realists. I hope there's not a sequel uh, that is <laughs> dystopia for real. Think of it as you will. <laughs> of course, Humankind, which is out now. Uh, stay safe there in the Netherlands, and thank you again for joining me on The Open Mind. Thanks for having me, Alexander. Please visit The Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access over 1,500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Open Mind TV for updates on future programming. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from Anne Olnick, Joan Gans Cooney, Lawrence B. Benenson, the Engelson Family Foundation, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.